Hi, everybody. It's Richard Beatty, and you are listening to Useful to God Radio with Dr. James Spencer. And uh, James, we're about to go another jaunt through Genesis, this time Genesis 2. We did Genesis 1, and we talked a little bit about creation and everything else that goes along with creation. <laughs> so um, where does God's Word go? Genesis 2 is kind of uh, a bridge. It's pretty tame. Yeah. yeah. So I'll, I'll say I think uh, the best place to start with Genesis 2 is actually in Genesis 1. And so we talked a little bit about Genesis one last time, but this time yes. what I want to what I want to look at is um, specifically Genesis one twenty six through twenty seven, okay, um, and probably into twenty eight. And so this is where God is saying, "Let us make mankind in our own image and our own likeness, mm -hmm. so that they may rule over the fish in the in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals." over all the creatures that move along the ground. God creates man in his own image and creates a male and female. And he tells them, he, he says this, um, it, it's a, the, well, 128 says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so what we're seeing in this verse is a couple of things. Number one, we're seeing the fundamental nature of humankind. We are made in the image of God. And so in the image of God really is about reflecting God's glory in God's creation. We talked a little bit about that last time. But the the essence of it is, is that, you know, humankind is supposed to be God's representative on earth. And so as humankind is doing what they do, they are reflecting God's glory out into God's creation. And so then he gives them this destiny, let's say. Some some call it a destiny, some call it a blessing, some call it almost like a task or a commission. Mm -hmm. And what we see here is that God is calling humanity to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. That subduing language is going to become important in Genesis 2, I think, in relation to the understanding of what it means for woman to have been made as man's helper. And so as we move into Genesis 2, what we really have, we have a good understanding then of what humankind is just in general. These are these are creatures made in the image of God designed uniquely to reflect God's glory into his creation. But we also see that humankind has a particular vocation or commission, a task that they are to complete. And that task is to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And so now as we transition into Genesis 2, and it really starts at Genesis um, 2-4, I would say that Genesis 2, 1 through 3 really should be appended to chapter 1. It's the seventh day. It's the Sabbath. Right. So when we move into uh, Genesis 2-4, we have this interesting marker. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And we see this formula throughout much of the early parts of Genesis. Sometimes we'll read it as, these are the generations of. And so it, it sort of marks it off and it starts giving a genealogy. And so there's a number of different theories about whether this is an introduction, whether it's a conclusion, well, you know, how this all functions. The reality is we can just notice the marker and recognize that it is at this point, what we're seeing is a, a shift from the creation of all things. And now we're going to refocus in on the creation of humanity in this beautiful utopian garden that God is going to create for us. So as we 
are reading that, how do we apply that to what we're seeing now when you're thinking about all the things, all the calamities that are striking Earth right now? Sure. Uh, we haven't done a really good job in subduing the Earth. Well, so maybe we've done too good a job. Yeah, right. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, maybe we've overreached. I, I think I see this echoed in a number of different places. I am of the mind that what God is asking the original human couple to do is to expand the precincts of the garden. So the Garden of Eden is not, it doesn't seem to me, the fullness of all creation. So in other words, if you think of a globe, right? right and you sort of, you know, you, you think of it and it has this this beautiful little spot that is the Garden of Eden. What humankind was supposed to do was to expand that little spot out by multiplying and subduing the earth. Hmm. In other words, as, as we think about it, we might think about it in terms of as humanity spreads and to the extent that they are a reflection of God's image, now God's glory expands to fill the entire earth up. Right. And we see this with the temple. We see this at the end of Second Chronicles, where Cyrus is actually talks about being given the authority to send the Jews back to rebuild the temple of God. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and that temple of God is really intended not to just be a, a solid state temple. It's not supposed to be just a, a specific locale. It's supposed to be a point from which the, the nations start to recognize the wisdom of the Israelites, Deuteronomy chapter four, as the Israelites keep the commands and statutes of Yahweh, those commands and statutes become wisdom for them. Right. And the the nations take notice and they recognize that there's something different about Israel and they, they locate that difference really in Israel's God. And so the worship at the temple is intended to be not just local, but more expansive. And so we really do see that in Second Chronicles. And I think the last place that we really see this idea of expanding across, um, extending the glory of God, is actually in the Great Commission in Matthew. So when we read Matthew, what we usually focus on is, go ye therefore and make disciples. What sometimes we miss is what that disciple making is intended to do. So in the line prior, I think it's uh, Matthew 28, 18, if I'm getting that uh, reference correct, Jesus says, I have been given authority over all things in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples. Mm -hmm. And so the going and making disciples of all nations is an extension of the proximity. It's an extension of all those who would recognize Christ's authority. Sitting under, like becoming a disciple entails two things, baptism and observance of all Christ's command. Baptism is a burial into Christ's death a recognition that he is truly Lord and that we are willing to uh, give up our old lives in order to live on his terms. And learning that obedience, learning to observe all Christ commanded, is another iteration of that. It's a way of us recognizing the authority of Christ through the way that we teach and train each other, really, but also teach and train new converts. And so we see these different layers of expansion that come out. And and it really begins here in Genesis where this idea of subduing the whole earth and and multiplying and filling the whole earth, we have to remember this this commission was given pre-fall. And so as humans sort of expand out and multiply, they're automatically demonstrating God's glory. That's just how it worked. 
Well, and I think you brought up uh, the last uh, program in Genesis 1, that being made in the image of God is that we were, we are all given our gifts and talents, our uniqueness right. to reflect back the glory that's of right. God. And that that's, right. uh, that's a beautiful uh, way of putting it. You know, you, you kind of you kind of think about that and you say, who wouldn't want that? Yeah. And what? why is it so hard <laughs> right. to get people to say, wow, you could be if if you're a perfectionist, this is the way to do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's this is a transformation process. Yeah. Well, and I mean, not not ruining Genesis three for everybody that we'll deal with in the next episode. Yeah. But I mean, right. the reality is that the the problem really begins. Um, God has put, you know, in, in Genesis two, four through um, really the end of the chapter, you know, we see God has put Adam and Eve in this beautiful place. Right. It, it's sort of effortless to be there. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so um, while they are to work and keep the garden of God mm-hmm. and they have this sort of decree to go out and and, um, you know, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. So they're supposed to do these different things. They have tasks that they are supposed to do. Right. Um, it really is an effortless place. It's a beautiful place. It's it's a paradise in, in every sense of the word. But keeping paradise comes with a very, fairly simple, what seems like a fairly simple stipulation. Don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Right. And so that comes in in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, where God says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. So everything is available to you for food, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. And so here's this stipulation, this command, this sort of, um, as we say it all the time, forbidden fruit that uh, initially isn't really that big of a problem. But because it's forbidden, it requires a level of trust in the one who is forbidding it that this is actually bad for us. Mm-hmm. And so as we move into Genesis 3, we'll begin to see problems here and, and what really is going to what it really is going to end up happening and how the crafty serpent fools the, the man and the woman into eating this fruit and creating a, something of a debacle for the rest of us. Well, we're going to take a short break right here. Uh, I'm Richard Beatty, and... That was Dr. James Spencer, and every every week we go through a half hour of uh, a book of the Bible, and this we're starting at the beginning, at Genesis, and this is our second year. If you would like more and would like to study more and, and deeper, there are a bunch, <laughs> a bunch of courses, James and uh, other people uh, from Useful to God Ministries have developed. It's uh, just lifelong learning. Go to usefulthegod.com, and you will get a full array of, uh, of courses there. And so the going and making disciples of all nations is it's an extension of all those who would recognize Christ's authority. Right. Sitting under like becoming a disciple entails two things, baptism and observance of all Christ's command. Baptism is a burial into Christ's death, a recognition that he is truly Lord and that we are willing to uh, give up our old lives in order to live on his terms. And learning that obedience, learning to observe all Christ commanded is another iteration of that. It's a way of us 
recognizing the authority of Christ through the way that we teach and train each other, really, but also teach and train new converts. And so we see these different layers of expansion that come out, and, and it really begins here in Genesis where this idea of subduing the whole earth and, and multiplying and filling the whole earth, we have to remember this this commission was given pre-fall. And so as humans sort of expand out and multiply, they're automatically demonstrating God's glory. That's just right. how it worked. Well, and I think you brought up uh, the last uh, program in Genesis 1 that being made in the image of God is that we were, we are all given our gifts and talents, our uniqueness right. to reflect back the glory that's of right. God. And that that's, right. uh, that's a beautiful uh, way of putting it. You know, you, you kind of you kind of think about that and you say, who wouldn't want that? Yeah. And what? why is it so hard <laughs> right. to get people to say, wow, you could be if if you're a perfectionist, this is the way to do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's this is a transformation process. Yeah. Well, and I mean, not not ruining Genesis three for everybody that we'll deal with in the next episode. Yeah. But I mean, right. the reality is that the the problem really begins. Um, God has put, you know, in, in Genesis two, four through um, really the end of the chapter, you know, we see God has put Adam and Eve in this beautiful place. Right. It, it's sort of effortless to be there. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so um, while they are to work and keep the garden of God mm-hmm. and they have this sort of decree to go out and and, um, you know, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. So they're supposed to do these different things. They have tasks that they are supposed to do. Right. Um, it really is an effortless place. It's a beautiful place. It's it's a paradise in, in every sense of the word. But keeping paradise comes with a very, fairly simple, what seems like a fairly simple stipulation. Don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Right. And so that comes in in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, where God says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, so everything is available to you for food, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, mm-hmm. for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. And so here's this stipulation, this command, this sort of, um, as we say it all the time, forbidden fruit, that uh, initially isn't really that big of a problem. But because it's forbidden, it requires a level of trust in the one who is forbidding it, that this is actually bad for us. Mm-hmm. And so as we move into Genesis 3, we'll begin to see problems here and, and what really is going to what it really is going to end up happening and how the crafty serpent fools the, the man and the woman into eating this fruit and creating a something of a debacle for the rest of us. Right. Uh, and uh, but, you know, without going into Genesis 3, we don't we, we don't give really a lot of spoiler alerts here, but uh, <laughs> that's uh, right. So I, I, I wonder uh, some of the things that you've been developing uh, in the curriculum that you have at Useful to God. Is this the kind of stuff that people can expect this kind of it's very affirming? Yeah, I mean, very much. I, I think that um, for the most part, what I really try to do and, and sort of what I've been trained to do. Um, yeah. My background is not specifically in theology or systematic theology, which isn't a bad thing. That's not like a dirty word or anything. But, right. <laughs> um, you know, when I started doing my MDiv, mm-hmm. uh, I came in and I had read um, parts of the gospel or parts of Romans and about half the gospel of John. 
that was all I knew when I came into my MD. Oh, uh, really? And it was really, yeah, I, I, you know, somebody had challenged me from Campus Crusade to read through the Gospel of John over December break. Yeah. And I couldn't get through it. I didn't understand what I was reading. And so wow. I got about halfway through and just said, I don't get this. This isn't doing anything for me. And I just put it away. And so a lot of what had ended up happening for me as I went through sort of the discipleship process with different people, I was much more of a challenging human being. Like I just asked a lot of questions and pushed back on a lot of the sort of community norms that um, were being put on me. And what the guy who really pushed me into uh, my MDiv said, he's like, you're too stubborn to have anybody teach this to you. You really need to discover how to do this on your own. Wow. And so he encouraged me to go to seminary. And so uh, I say all that to say this, I very much believe that God's word speaks for itself. And so anything that we do on the radio or on the courses, I really do want to test against God's word. You know, at the end of the day, I can disagree with other scholars or what have you. But, you know, when you're in disagreement with God's word, those are the things that you want to repent of. And so, you know, we always want to uh, find that place where we're sitting under the authority of God's word and we're dealing with it as best we possibly can as interpreters. And so uh, in the courses, that's exactly what we try to do. Um, we try to really start from more of a biblical starting point, and whether that's a specific passage or whether it's a biblical theme or something like that, and we try to draw out the implications of that, much the same way we're doing here. Well, I I like that. Uh, I I don't I don't want to sound like an infomercial. I just like the way you approach it from almost like a wonderment, but also to say, man, this is really God is speaking into existence, and it applies to me. Uh, and my purpose. How do people then? Is a whole different. I mean, you you have people yeah. that are studying the Bible that are listening, uh, that are study it all the time. This has the study aspect, the relational aspect, and also the outreach aspect. I I call it sure. SRO type of study. Um, how can people get this? And how can they uh, develop and grow? I would think couples, churches should be able to have access to this. These would be great studies. Well, I think, number one, you know, obviously, we're going to put this out uh, on the podcast. And so it's out there on the radio and on the podcast. Um, The podcast will be actually starting uh, in January. Uh, We'll be putting all of these episodes out on um, a platform with Salem Media. And so it'll be out there. It'll be um, good to go. And um, one place is the platform. Um, So people can find us on one place. Um, they can also go to usefultogod.com and and find courses and different things. Um, we're actually getting ready to launch about 20 more courses uh, from wow. different scholars. It won't just be me talking. Um, we've got a number of other scholars that have um, developed courses and do a really effective job of communicating God's word. And so folks can subscribe um, is essentially where we're going. And uh, they'll be able to take all those courses or however many they'd like within a given year. I think that, you know, overall, you know, people who are reading their Bibles and specifically reading something like Genesis 2, which honestly does not lend itself to a direct application, Mm -hmm. right? Certain passages they do, right? Let's say something like in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. There's a very specific way that we can enact that. Let's just not kill anybody, right? (laughs) Um, 
but but Genesis two, it, it it isn't that. It's it's not a direct application to any particular part of our lives. And so the way I like to think of it is, if you're reading through the the Bible, I think in general, I think actually direct application is more of a rarity than, than people might assume. What I think the Bible is really trying to get us to do is to immerse ourselves within the story. So you have something like uh, Romans 6, where it talks about being taken captive or entrusted to the teaching. So believers are entrusted to the teaching. The teaching isn't entrusted to the believers. Right. We are entrusted to the teaching. And so there's a sense in which we are contained and committed within this teaching. Like This is who we are. We're people of the word. We're people of the book. And so immersing ourselves within this, understanding its patterns, understanding its way of thought, like allowing that to sort of seep into the way we see the world and the way we think about how we interact with others is a really important aspect of this. And, and I think, you know, in Genesis 2, what we what we really find, uh, you know, one of the clearest places I think we can see this is actually in the way that uh, God forms woman for man. Right. Right. And, and so... What we end up with here is we we end up with this portion where God is saying, well, it's not good for man to be alone. So Adam has this task to accomplish. He is to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. But he's by himself. Now, when we read good, what I think we should be reading is it is not suitable. Mm-hmm. In other words, it is not fit for the purpose I have for him, for him to be alone. Now, we can relate that specifically to procreation. Difficult for men to procreate on their own. Be fruitful and multiply is very challenging if it's just one guy. And God parades all the animals in front of him. And it's like, no, there's no suitable helper. Thank goodness. Right. And so now we're looking at, you know, creating woman. Right. We can definitely view it like that. But I think it's actually more than that. I actually think that when we look at it and we say we limit it to just being fruitful and multiplying, we're we're shorting it. Because there's more there. We're also to subdue the earth. Uh, We are to keep and guard the garden. Those words, keep and guard, uh, they're used actually in numbers with regard to the Aaronic priests. Hmm. And so these were words that were then used in the temple structure that were related to the, the management of worship, the service at the temple, this attending to God and leading others into worship with him. And so we've got all of these things kind of swirling around in this Genesis narrative. And what God does, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. We parade the animals through. He names them all. No super helpers found. And so what does God do? He puts Adam to sleep, uses his rib and creates the woman. Right. And the woman is tended to be a helper. Now, we often read that as like help meet. Right. Right. You've heard that word like a million times. Help me. Yeah. In the Hebrew, what you have is you have two words. Helper right? Which is a, a noun. And you have an adjective, fit for, or uh, meet um, is the old English way of saying this. Appropriate, suitable, fitting. That's what the, there, it's a two-word combination. There is no actual single word, helpmate. Now, what you look at when you find Ezer in the Old Testament is that in almost every other context in which it occurs in the Old Testament, in and it is applied to God at various places, God is our Ezer in various places. It does not imply subordination. Eve is not lesser than, than mm-hmm. Adam. But I think what it implies is it is a partner for the battle. When you right. look at Ezer throughout the whole Testament, what you find is that Ezer is a partner for the battle. 
Now, it, it seems odd, maybe in the context of Genesis 2, to talk about it like that, but doesn't it also seem odd that we're using subdue in Genesis 126? And right. subdue, if you look at it across the Old Testament, aside from some very, uh, very few references to physical domination through inappropriate sexual acts, mm. right? What mm. you really find is nation subduing nation. Right. There is a, a very physical, militaristic, um, almost violent connotation that comes out. The subduing happens, in other words, through military action, through wow. physical yeah. uh, subduing. And so what I think we're seeing in in Genesis 2 really is just that. We're we're seeing this idea that man and woman together are to go about not only being fruitful and multiplying, which man and woman together are are well suited to do, but they're also supposed to go about subduing. And and she is a helper to man in that subduing. In that, in that taming the world of, of doing that, whatever battle needed to happen, like this is your partner. You're going to go through life stuff with this person, period. Right. And the domestic aspect of it, um, you know, that we've tended to, I think, anachronistically read in is not completely absent from the narrative. So if we look at and I'll fast forward to Genesis three, you know, there's enmity between the or the the seed of the woman and the snake. And what is right. the the seed of the woman going to do? It's going to crush the head of the serpent. It's, yeah. These are visceral terms. Yeah. Right? Crush, subdue. Right. Right? Like yeah. these are these are like they're not easy terms. Mm-hmm. When we talk about crushing someone. Right. But that's not a nice, we're going to pet him on the head. We're going to put him in a cage, but we're going to try to be as humane as possible. These these are hard words. And so even in her domestic function, if we could call giving birth that, what we see is that we have a partner in this battle that is coming between man, woman, humanity, and the struggle with the spiritual principalities and powers, in this case, embodied in the serpent. And so as we as we understand those patterns, right, as we understand what Genesis 2 is trying to get us to understand, what I would say is that what we see is man and woman are in this together, that disobedience is really our enemy, that the wisdom God's giving us is a wisdom that implies our obedience to him and our loyalty to him, right. and that when we exhibit that sort of obedience, there is no need for shame. There's no need for shame between one another, and there's no need for shame between us and God. And that comes out in the last verse of actually chapter 2. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. That's Dr. James Spencer on Genesis 2. Next week, we'll pick up on Genesis 3. So many things to talk about here on Useful to God Radio. This new season is a time to study, relate to each other, and to reach out and become useful to God. This adventure and discipline can go very deep by going deeper at usefulthegod.com with all the studies. Audio learning is portable, accessible, and it's available. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know where you hear the show and join us on usefulthegod.com or usefulthegodradio.com. I'm Richard Beatty and for Dr. James Spencer. Have a great week in our journey to becoming useful to God.